Our primary reading this morning is Hebrews chapter 11. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is a conviction of things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, though what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. It was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. Abel's offering gave evidence that he was a righteous man, and God showed his approval of his gifts. Although Abel is long dead, he still speaks to us by his example of faith. It was by faith that Enoch was taken up to heaven without dying. He disappeared because God took him. For before he was taken up, he was known as a person who pleased God. And it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. It was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God who warned him about things that had never happened before. By his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world and he received the righteousness that comes by faith. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. And even when he reached the land God promised him, he lived there by faith. For he was like a foreigner living in tents. And so did Isaac and Jacob, who inherited the same promise. Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. It was by faith that even Sarah was able to have a child, though she was barren and was too old. She believed that God would keep his promise. And so a whole nation came from this one man who was as good as dead, a nation with so many people that, like stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, there is no way to count them. All these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it from a distance and welcomed it. They, they agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. It was by faith that Isaac promised blessings for the future to his sons, Jacob and Esau. It was by faith that Jacob, when he was old and dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and bowed in worship as he leaned on his staff. It was by faith that Joseph, when he was about to die, said confidently that the people of Israel would leave Egypt. 
He even commanded them to take his bones with them when they left. It was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was born. They saw that God had given them an unusual child, and they were not afraid to disobey the king's command. It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to call the son, be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his great reward. It was by faith that Moses left the land of Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He kept right on going because he kept his eyes on the one who is invisible. It was by faith that Moses commanded the people of Israel to keep the Passover and to sprinkle blood on the doorstep, doorpost so that the angel of death would not kill their firstborn sons. It was by faith that the people of Israel went through the Red Sea as though they were on dry ground. But when the Egyptians tried to follow, they were all drowned. It was by faith that the people of Israel marched around Jericho for seven days and the walls came crashing down. It was by faith that Rahab, the prostitute, was not destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God, for she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. How much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back again from death. But others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at, and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning, some were sawed in half, and others killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised. For God had something better in mind for us so that they would not re reach perfection without us. The word of the Lord. If you go to Westminster Abbey in London, above the Great West Door, you can see what is known as the Ten Modern Martyrs. Christians from around the world who were killed for their faith in the 20th century. It is a stirring visual of faithfulness to Christ. And knowing that they are also martyrs is a powerful reminder of how compelling Christ is but also what it may cost to follow him. Our reading this morning in Hebrews, all of chapter 11, which Stephen read wonderfully, 
is meant to be the emotional climax of the sermon that is the letter to the Hebrews. It is a roll call of faith, the hall of heroes, the great west door of Hebrew saints spoken over the congregation. And in chapter 11, the word faith is used a whopping 22 times. And so it's obvious what our likely author Apollos is focusing on. But in verse 1, the definition of faith that he provides has been one that has been badly misunderstood by both fundamentalist Christians, the general culture, and often those hostile to Christianity. You see, on one hand, fundamentalist Christians have taken the description of faith by the most educated author of any book in the Bible and have grossly simplified its definition. In this misunderstanding, faith is a doubtless faith, and the best kind of faith tends to be one that is passively waiting on God, all the while never doubting. Meanwhile, the general culture also likes the idea of faith, not necessarily religious in its sense, but as wish fulfillment. In this misunderstanding, faith is more like, I want X or Y to happen in my life, and therefore I will have faith that it will And so in light of these two misunderstandings, perhaps it's not a surprise then that those antagonistic to Christianity like to heap scorn on the notion of faith. The neo-atheist Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion, actually cites Hebrews 11.1 in his definition of faith, arguing that the Bible itself describes faith as, quote, the persistent false belief held in the face of strong contradictory evidence. For neo-atheists like Dawkins, faith isn't just wish fulfillment. It's not even a faith that doesn't doubt. Rather, he says, quote, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. However, Apollos' understanding of faith is not blind or unthinking. It is not about wish fulfillment, and it is certainly not doubtless. Instead, Apollos' definition of faith in Hebrews is nuanced, powerful, and double-edged. Let's look at chapter 11, verse 1. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the conviction of things not see, we cannot see. Faith here is described in two ways. One that is more subjective and one that is more objective. One way that brings me internal comfort and one way that compels me to external action. Now where do we see that in just this short verse? When Apollos talks about a conviction of things we cannot see, this means a faith that can provide us comfort, a confidence, when our beliefs cannot be quantified and counted and tested in a laboratory. This stems from our humility about human limitations, in that our ability as humans to engage with reality is limited to this dimensional plane in linear time-space. And so in light of this limitation, though modern theories of physics have been helpful in agreeing with us as of late, Christians have historically held a conviction that reality is bigger and deeper than the powers of human observation. God is bigger and deeper than the powers of human observation. 
Or think about this understanding of faith in terms of Ascension Sunday. Jesus' disciples went from being able to see him during his ministry to not being able to see him after his ascension back to the triune God. So faith for them, just as Apollo says, meant having a conviction of things they cannot see, that is the ascended Christ, because of something that they had seen, that is the incarnational Christ, that indicated that reality was bigger and deeper than merely than what they could observe with their eyes. Now in some ways this is the more traditional understanding of faith. It is primarily subjective. And perhaps this is how you might define your faith as well. But Apollos' first half of his definition may surprise some of us in that he believes faith carries within it an objective component. Look at what he says. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. What does this mean? That faith not only gives me subjective comfort, but that faith has the power to manifest reality itself. I'll say that again. Faith has the power to manifest reality itself. All right, so did the pastor just become a new ager today? Right, like this is the soundbite your fundamentalist friends are waiting for, like, ah, he's liberal and weird. No, I am not referring to new age ideas of manifesting your dreams with the power of positive thinking. Here's what I mean. Implicit in the gospel is that Christ has inaugurated what is simply known as the kingdom of God, which is the inbreaking of God's will into the world, a will that includes justice, peace, love, and healing. The Bible describes this as a grassroots revolution that will culminate in the second coming of Christ, who will finish the reversal of the effects of sin and death. This is standard, historical, orthodox Christian teaching, and it is also part of the Christian hope that we are invited to participate in. Now, if I have faith that this is truly the future for the world, and I have faith that Christ has inaugurated this kingdom of God now, then that will change how I live now. I will act differently based on this faith. But here's the cool part. When I act on faith that God is doing this, that God is in the process of defeating injustice, conflict, hate, and harm, and God is in the process of bringing justice, peace, love, and healing to humanity, I will actually begin to manifest this future reality into the present. What does not yet exist will begin to exist, and it will begin to exist because of faith. Still confused? Let me show you an example from 20th century history. Malcolm X, an activist who is in the nation of Islam, and Martin Luther King Jr., who was a pastor. Both men fought for civil rights for black Americans. Both men's conceptions of civil rights was about the same. They didn't have different visions of this. After all, it doesn't take a Christian to care about civil rights. Anyone can care about civil rights. But Malcolm X was comfortable with the idea that the traditional tools of worldly power, including violence, might be necessary to realize that vision. 
On top of that, his particular religious faith agreed with that pragmatism. But the odd part today is that some people try to paint Malcolm X as some kind of dangerous radical. Relatively speaking, he wasn't. He advocated for using the same tools that nearly every revolutionary in history would accept. In reality, it was Dr. King who was the true radical. Because Dr. King believed in a different set of revolutionary tools. His Christian beliefs led him to the hope that nonviolent resistance would be the means by which civil rights would be achieved. Even though, as Malcolm X critiqued of Dr. King, nonviolent resistance didn't seem to change anything. But King had faith that he could manifest God's future reality today. So much so. That in his five principles on nonviolence, King wrote this Nonviolence is based on the conviction that the universe is on the side of justice. It is the deep faith in the future that allows a nonviolent resistor to accept suffering without retaliation. The nonviolent resistor knows that in his struggle for justice, he has a cosmic companionship. When it did not exist, Dr. King had a faith that created a reality of what he hoped for. And he participated with God in manifesting it into existence. This is how our author of Hebrews understands faith. It is the inward conviction of a wider and deeper reality that exists now. But it is also an outward manifestation of a reality that will exist fully into the future. It is with this understanding then that Apollos launches into his hall of faith. Now, in some ways, I wish we could do a biopic on each person mentioned here in Hebrews. After all, you've probably never heard of a guy named Enoch from the book of Genesis who literally got transmitted into heaven without dying. That's kind of weird. But on the other hand, ain't nobody got time for that. And in some ways, Apollos doesn't have time for it either. This is not meant to be exhaustive here. This is meant to be illustrative. It's not really even prose. This is more poetry. However, I think it's important that we notice three potentially surprising aspects of Apollos' hall of faith and what that has to teach us about our own faith. First, the Christian faith treasures our eternal union with Christ over the temporary blessings offered by our culture. Let's look at verse 13. All these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Notice how Apollos points out that the heroes of faith, even though they were chosen and used powerfully by God, did not receive a lifestyle of great health or material success. They weren't constantly ha writing hashtag blessed on their filters, okay? No, they died without the material blessings that they reasonably sought. 
They never found a permanent home. They never found security. They never established a dynasty. Here's why I think that's important for some of us to know. If I associate faithfulness with God's blessings and I don't receive those blessings, I will either worry that I am not faithful enough or that God isn't faithful enough. But if the heroes of faith died without getting all their bucket lists checked, I don't have to worry that my faith is inadequate or dysfunctional no matter how hard or good my life might be in the moment. But if that's the case, if faith doesn't necessarily increase the material quality of my life, if it doesn't guarantee me that happy ending that I want, then what am I really hoping for? Verse 25. Moses chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his great reward. Apollo says that Moses chose to share in oppression rather than his privilege because there was a treasure greater than all the treasures of Egypt. Moses did this for the sake of Christ, for the reward of union with Christ. This eternal reward was worth the cost because a beautiful relationship is more precious than beautiful things. Most people today can even understand this. Moses certainly understood this. And because Moses understood this, Moses' faith treasured union with Christ over the temporary blessings of his culture. Second, the Christian faith is seen by God for our moments of great faithfulness over any of my failures. Some of you who have read a bit of Hebrew scriptures, what Christians call the Old Testament, uh, as you look at some of the figures that Apollos mentions here, you might raise an eyebrow that they get a mention in the heroes of faith. There are some problematic people referenced here. Not only do many of these people have rap sheets that would make it hard for them to get a job in fast food, much less church leadership, but the way that Apollos describes their stories is frankly not accurate. Sarah didn't believe God at first. Sarah laughed at God. Isaac didn't intentionally put a blessing on Jacob. Isaac was tricked by the son he ignored. Moses wasn't unafraid of the king of Egypt. Moses was often paralyzed by fear. What does this mean? That if you are in Christ, God is not counting your worst sins against you to hold them up against you one day. That God is not compiling a rap sheet with a plan to expose all your flaws and your faults. No, if you are in Christ, God is counting your acts of faithfulness to celebrate them with you one day. God is compiling your highlight reel with a plan to give you, as Apollo says, a good reputation. Because look, God knows you are not going to be 
100% faithful. You are not going to be 100% perfect, just as God knew that about Sarah and Isaac and Moses, about Abraham and Jacob and Rahab. But over the course of your life, God is going to give you opportunities to be faithful in ways that really count, that really matter. And I can't quote a Bible verse on this, so don't ask me to, but I, I, I personally really believe this. That every one of us will be given opportunities by God to positively affect not only the people in our own life, but unmet people in generations yet born. And sometimes it's going to be obvious. Like you're going to know in your bones, like, oh, this, this is the moment. But sometimes I think you will have no idea that this is your moment to change lives. But if you are a follower of Jesus, I believe God wants you to have that opportunity and to be faithful in it. Why? Because the Christian faith is seen by God not for our moments of any failures, but for our opportunities of great faithfulness. Lastly, the Christian faith is about pleasing God over pleasing the world. Apollos tells us again and again in Hebrews 11 that the only way to please God is through faith. Now it's important to remember that the way the author of Hebrews uses this phrase, please God, is not synonymous with approval by God or acceptance by God. Apollos has already established that Jesus, through his sacrificial life and death, has achieved a complete acceptance and approval for us in the eyes of God. And so if Jesus has effectively done for us what man-made religion will try to get its adherents to spend their entire lives trying to accomplish themselves, then, well, what else is there for Christians to do? To accept the gift. To respond in faith. To know God's acceptance internally and to manifest God's reality externally. When we do that, it pleases God. God delights in us responding to the gospel in this way. But here's the thing. The world may not. When you please God, it may displease the world. When your faith begins to manifest justice and peace and love, and healing, God will be delighted. But there will be non-religious people and religious people who will not be delighted. And some of you know that sometimes religious people are the worst. So what has the world historically done when followers of Jesus have failed to please the powers and systems and religious institutions of this world? Verse 36, some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half. Others were killed with a sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheeps and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. 
Now, is this what you'll have to endure for faith? Very unlikely. Maybe some jeers. But if you don't fit into the cogs of their various agendas and ideologies, our culture will likely ignore you, trivialize you, try to forget you. Erasure is the more common tactic of this sophisticated age. And when you get caught in between the disgust of both non-religious and religious people, that erasure can feel very lonely. It can feel very isolating. And so I find it a strange assurance that the author of Hebrews can't even name all the heroes of faith. Perhaps because there are so many, but I find assurance in that perhaps some of them are so obscure. You see, when I looked at the 10 modern martyrs at Westminster, I was surprised by how few that I knew. Oh sure, Dr. King was there and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran pastor, the the Catholic bishop, Oscar Romero. But there was also a woman named Esther John from Pakistan. Lucian Tepedi from Papua New Guinea. Wang Ziming from China. These men and women had great faith in God. They did great things. And yet I had never heard of them. Had it not been for this west door of Westminster, I may have never heard of them. The powers and the systems of this world were not pleased with them. The world will not say their names. The world will not remember their names. Why? Because as Apollo says, the world was not worthy of them. The world was not worthy of the beauty and goodness of their faith. That they cared more about pleasing God over pleasing the world. But hear this good news. God will remember their names. God will remember your name forever, for all eternity. We are named. We are known. Our faith is seen. We, alongside every spiritual giant and every forgotten saint, will one day be united with Christ. For the sake of the gospel, may this be your faith. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
All right, since we're already running late, I'm only going to ask you two questions. All right. Okay. After the passage was read, I felt super intimidated and scared about what my faith will cost me. How do you quiet those fears? Mm. Um, I think two ways. One is to know that you're in good company, right? Like, it's not like, it's like, all right, God, you got one chance. Don't screw it up. And, uh, you know, it's, your, your faith will cost you, but there's, God has so much grace for us along the way. And even when you read the stories of, of, of biblical characters who really struggle and face a lot of pressure, God is always providing these, these elements of, of sustaining grace uh, in ways that are just like just at the right time. So you know that if God's going to put you in places that you need great faith, God is going to provide you the means to sustain that faith. And the second part is, we'll always harp on this, is like go to community, right? You yeah. do not have to to do these things alone. Community is the place that can actually walk with you in faith when you do not have faith. They hold you up together. And so, yeah, I go over those two things. Great. What's the deal with Christians longing for another country? Uh, yeah, it's a weird part of the text. We didn't have time to talk about it today. But there's this great tension within Christianity to say, like, we are not of this world. Like, we are citizens of heaven. We don't have a citizenship that actually is, like, a nation state in the way that most people say, like, my highest loyalty is to my country. Christians are like, no, we have a higher loyalty. But at the same time, we're also waiting for God to come and restore this world. So it's like we acknowledge we are aliens until the point when God returns and restores things fully. And it's this tension of being, like, we're waiting for the restoration in the world, but we also are like, I can't be too connected. And this is one of those great tensions within Christianity that many theologians have worked out. Nice. All right. If y'all have any more questions or questions about the questions, feel free to text them in. But for now, we're going to continue with worship. All right. Thanks, Sam.